Snamav Ravamital's most famous sichot were delivered on Rosh Hashanah, right before Mosaf, right before the Tekels. And typically, the second day, he would elaborate upon the events at that, upon that great mountain. The Akedah, Haramaria, Abraham Yitzchak, the Malachim, the portion of the Torah we read on the second day of Rosh Hashanah. We just read. But the first day, he spoke in a more global sense about HaKadosh Baruch Hu's Malchus. There are many themes on Rosh Hashanah, but clearly the dominant one is HaKadosh Baruch Hu's presence in our world, his Malchus, our attempt to extend it and to expand it. That's why the Tem Sukkim of Malchut are embedded within the bracha of Rosh Hashanah proper. For example, the section of Zechronot concludes with a separate bracha, Baruch HaTah Hashem Zocher HaBris. The section with Shofaros concludes with Shomea Kol Tru'as Beis Yisrael Barachamim. But the section of Malchus concludes with Makadish Yisrael V'Yom HaZikaron because the phrase Yom HaZikaron is almost equivalent to Malchus. It's the theme of Rosh Hashanah. And he would assess the state of Hashem's Malchus in our world. Has it been a good year for HaKadosh Baruch Hu's evolving Malchus? Has it been a regressive year? Hashem's Malchus is infinite, unbounded, absolute, immutable. But his Malchus in this world is still under construction. And we are the builders, we are the contractors. And for some reason, HaKadosh Baruch Hu created a world and empowered man with free will. And the drama of human history, a drama which the Jewish people author, is the attempt to expose human beings to God's will and for human beings to sense the redemptive nature of that interaction and to freely embrace. HaKadosh Baruch Hu ultimately is the master of an entire world by providing life on a daily basis. On Rosh Hashanah, that authority is even more enunciated because every man is judged. But no one is aware of it except for the Jewish people. As the Vilna Gong classically said, Hashem is a Moshel, is a imposed authority upon the entire world, not yet a Melech, he's our Melech. And Gehai Hashem Melech al it's right now, Kil Hashem Hamelucha. We have embraced him and acknowledged him as a Melech, Umoshel Bagoyim, but for most nations he still is a Moshel. He imposes his authority, but they haven't willfully or volitionally accepted it. And we yearn for a day, and we recite this Pasuk in the section of Malchut, V'yalom Moshiyim Behar Tzion L'Shbodes HaRisav, V'yasel Hashem Amlucha, V'yaya Hashem L'Melech Al Kol HaRetz, V'yom Ohu, Yeh Hashem Echad Ushmo Echad. And if a Jew lives Malchus Hashem very deeply at the core of his or her identity, then Rosh Hashanah is a special day. The state which we yearn for and crusade for an entire year is felt more palpably on this day. And retrospectively, we ponder, where are we? How much success have we seen? How far and wide has the Kaddish Baruch Hu's Malchus extended? I used to call it to myself, he would never call it this, the State of the Union. Every year, there's an accounting, a president, a head of state, assesses where we are, which mistakes, which regressions, which limitations, what our hopes are, and shares it. And if Malchus Hashem is foremost in a person's mind, then Rosh Hashanah is a time for reflection. And Rosh Hashanah is a time for reflection because it's a time to remember that in particular with, with regard to this aspect of Malchus Hashem, it isn't primarily a parochial and national issue. The presence of HaKadosh Baruch Hu can't only be judged based on a Jewish index, state of Israel, religious growth and success, how many blood Gemara have been learned that year, how many mikvos have been opened? How many shuls have been populated? Though that as well, because we believe that part of that drama is our own religious observance and performance, both in terms of 
metaphysically drawing Hashem Shin into our world, perhaps an extra mikvah or an extra shul, an extra blot gemara may not be noticed on the world stage, but metaphysically HaKadosh Baruch Hu's presence is more tangible in our world, and that affects the human experience in ways that, in some ways, far surpass involvement in the mechanics of human government. But we're also concerned with the grand stage and what, what factors and what phenomena are affecting human experience and are these reflective of advances in Malchus Hashem or sometimes of sometimes withdrawals of Malchus Hashem in our world. Servanitan would always consider the broad scale. I remember him discussing the fall of communism, the rise of radical Islamic fundamentalism, the Iraq war, large phenomena that are far beyond the parochial national, and in no way suggesting that the parochial national experiences are less impactful, but sometimes our parochialism blinds us to more universal international phenomena. And sometimes there are events which erupt suddenly, which explode onto the scene, and they create transparent comprehension of some of these issues affecting Hashem's presence in this world. More often than not, these are gradual evolutionary processes that sometimes span decades, sometimes span centuries, and sometimes there are events which highlight or accentuate them. Sometimes Rosh Hashanah is just simply a time to reflect, not just on 2016 or Tavshinah and Zion, but an opportunity to reflect upon the 19th century, the 20th century, the modern age, because we all live in different time continuums. Obviously, we live in the year that we've just experienced most deeply. We think about that year, but obviously we're products mentally and attitudinally of an assemblage of many years in an aggregate consequence or an aggregate impact of many years. So I'd like to spend a few minutes thinking about Hashem's presence in our world and areas that we hope that it will improve and augment. Kodesh Baruch installed many systems to account for human stability and human prosperity. Many of them are direct as well as being precise system of biology, chemistry, ecology, physics, math. It's clear that without these systems, our bodies wouldn't function, our world wouldn't be stable. Without the world of physics, we couldn't build a building or a home, couldn't build a car. Couldn't. The entire world is dependent upon the systems that grant us, and of course in the modern age of science and reason, we've been able to delve into these systems, understand their dark secrets previously withheld to man in ancient times and lend greater order to our world, which often looked random, which often was characterized by mayhem and chaos, create a more stable, more empowered world. But other systems that he provides for us, it's less of a direct provision and more of an instinct. So, for example, much of technology is a divine instinct. Shem didn't create the internet. Human beings conceived of the ability of computers to communicate with one another and create a global network of information flow. But what gave human beings that creative intuition? Why does a human being possess that, whereas an animal doesn't or a tree does not? Because Baruchel provides the spark of creativity, the ability to see realities that are not optic or visual, to imagine them, and then to, of course, initiate them and launch them. Perhaps the ability that we think about most when Rosh Hashanah is the political ability. That HaKadosh Baruch Hu provided for human beings the ability to live in clusters and assemblage in, in large populations as opposed to, to most of the advanced animals. Obviously, ant colonies and smaller fish live in... Most of the larger animals live in smaller groups. Man provides prosperity, cross-pollination, enrichment, at a very technical level, a concentration and exploitation of resources. At a larger level, when man clusters together security um, against natural forces, against the ravages of the jungle, against foes. Beyond that, 
people cluster together, creativity, exchange of ideas, art, culture. So much of man's experience and his unique human experience is pitched on the ability to live in large numbers, not to live alone, not to face the curse of Cain, to live a nomadic, lonely lifestyle. Man is a communal creature, a social creature, a political creature. But to live in clustered, larger environments, man has to create a system of government, a system of protecting rights, enabling interaction, personal interaction, social interaction, financial interaction. Sakharish Barakul grants man a political instinct to create systems of government to protect, to oppose the rule of law. And we say this in the, in, in the Animamu section, so many of the phraseology and the terms of Rosh Hashanah are really double entendres. On the one hand, we're celebrating HaKadosh Baruch Hu as the Mamlech Melachim Velohan Lucha, we're testing to HaKadosh Baruch Hu's unimaginable might and authority, that whatever authority we may feel is vested in humankind, HaKadosh Baruch Hu towers and soars above that, his authority is infinite, fully beyond any ability in the frame, the, the uh, section in Musaf and Shach was Melech Leon, Testing to Kaddish Baruch Hu's sublime, immortal authority, and then we have one paragraph in the end contrasting it to Melech Basar Vadam, Tardemat Ufeno, who's constantly schluffing and asleep and lethargic. But that phrase also reminds us that Kaddish Baruch Hu allocates not just to particular rulers he decided who would be president, and Kaddish Baruch Hu allocates to humankind political instinct, political thought process to imagine systems of government. And based on HaKadosh Baruch Hu's help, human beings developed and advanced from very despotic, totalitarian, abusive, monarchical, tyrannical systems of government which plagued human history for thousands of years. And if we look at the broader perspective, one could look to the Magna Carta as the launching point of democracy, probably it's healthier, healthier to start around the 16th or 17th century, about four or five hundred years of democratic opportunity. Democratic opportunity which hasn't been extended to all humankind, but Baruch Hashem has innervated and permeated at some level or another. This is democracy index, but at some level or another. Even in totalitarian regimes, the democratic influence can be felt. Baruch Hashem, many of us listening to the Shir, inevitably people who speak English, are listening in the United States of America, in the UK, in South Africa, in Australia, obviously in Eretz Israel. All of us have the privilege to live and to operate under systems of democracy and freedom. And to the degree that this freedom prevents abuse, serves as a bulwark against exploitation and manipulation, thereby empowering man, hopefully empowering him for constructive, productive, selfless behavior. The advance of democracy is in many, many ways the advance of Malchus Hashem. Not only because we're empowered to serve our Kaddish Baruch in some ways un- unfettered from abuse and unsuppressed with persecution, also because human prosperity is the will of the Rabbanishal, the human Sakharish wants human beings to enjoy liberty and, and welfare. But in some ways, and in recent years this has become a bit highlighted, in some ways the advent of democracy has reminded us of some of the shortcomings in Malchus Hashem that we still experience and the rectification of which and repair of which we daven for in Rosh Hashanah in a day in which we daven for the removal of democracy and its replacement by a divine monarchy and for many of us living in democratic environments and extremely justifiably grateful for the democracies that raised us even that mental shift to recognize it effectively in Rosh Hashanah we daven for the dissolution and the dismantling of democracy that itself is an important mental shift. But not just the statement, but what aspects of democracy do we hope will be repaired in a divine monarchy environment? Firstly, 
we search for unity. Democracy encourages self-expression. It encourages creativity. It inspires individualism. It celebrates the individual. It protects his rights. It encourages personal expression. An individual wants and dreams. And built into democracy is the challenge to find a unifying theme and a unifying fabric to create communities of common held values. Thick, robust, strongly aligned communities because man lives as a communal animal, a communal creature. Democracy is always plagued by this question. What unifying ethos do people live for? What serves as their identity that creates a unifying sense of solidarity as opposed to essentially living in silhouette communities but living nomadic or experientially nomadic lifestyles, emotionally nomadic lifestyles, lonely and apart. So for many years and for some it's still very much a very powerful and compelling image. The idea of freedom and democracy was a unifying ethos. The city on the hill. Countries that represent the values of freedom and democracy. The willingness to sacrifice on behalf of projecting those values, to wage wars in defense of those values. But as democracy has begun to spread, those values have become less compelling. We take it for granted, properly or improperly, we take it for granted that the concepts of democracy have already infiltrated to the human consciousness. That's no longer an ethos that a country lives for, at least in many, many parts of the world, perhaps in the Middle East. The struggle for fledgling democracies empowers people to believe that they're pioneering a grand new experiment in human government in the areas that it may exist, but certainly across most of the Western world. The emergence of democracy has already been witnessed. It is now taken for granted as the ideal form of government to which many aspire. Democracy is built upon pitting opposing views and hoping for a compromise within that offset of opposing views and to try to create a larger collective or encompassing framework of unity. What happens when the ideas to unify people no longer exist? No unifying concepts. Other ideas which tend to unify people into communities and to create the solidarity of experience, a richer form of experience. Affiliation with nation, the belief that we come from common backgrounds and we've already established centuries and past history of communal experience and we have debts of gratitude to family, to community, responsibility to the future, to extend and to, and to perpetuate that collective experience that we jointly jointly emerge from basically nationalism a belief in belonging to a particular nation unfortunately nationalism associated or aggregated many many toxic and negative associations and expressions in the modern world in particular as nationalism grew in the latter part of the 19th century it erupted into a terrible terrible traumatic war of nationalism which for many people today has essentially soured them to any mention of the word nationalism. The Second World War, to a degree, was also about nationhood and identity and expressing it through fascism and Nazism, Aryan superiority. And people living in the shadow of those two wars are very traumatized by the nightmare that nationalism emerged or transformed into. And hence, the rise in the post-World War II era of globalization, of universalism, in which differences of race, of identity, of ethnicity, of nationhood, were blurred towards a higher ethic, presumably, of equality, of non-differentiation. And on the one hand, globalization poses challenges. At its core, its identity is very, very abstract. Um, shared values of the entire human race. It makes sense in the abstract, but it 
in the day-to-day, it's hard to rally around people in communities we haven't met. Obviously, it gained much traction in the latter part of the 20th century. Democracy is wedded to capitalism, um, releasing people's financial ability, spark-plugging, stimulating creativity with financial incentive. But that capitalism and, and wedded to globalism, essentially globalism is kerosene on the fire of capitalism has led to such a grand expansion which itself yielded an uneven distribution of wealth which caused a lot of backlash, frustration amongst people didn't benefit from that uneven distribution capitalism is not a system that marches in a calibrated or modulated fashion every once in a while there are unique periods of rapid expansion of quantum leap forwards. And those people who are fueling those quantum leaps become disproportionately wealthy at the expense of, of the common man. It happened in the turn of the 19th, 20th century, the Gilded Age, the barons of railroads, and, and it led to certain backlashes across the globe, not just in the United States of America in the first half of the 20th century. And that was happening universally in America, in, in England, in Israel, where the distribution of wealth is wild and varied, the technological bubble has introduced unprecedented levels of wealth. Somehow that wealth doesn't trickle down as much as we want it to. So globalism for many is a scary and challenging. It's challenging because it doesn't assert concrete, palpable ethos of unification. It also is introduces even greater economic strain, the loss of jobs, um, broadening the market to levels that are so abstract that they can become exploitative, the great crash of 2008. Somehow, the world is, in many cases, torn, divided between globalization, universalism, and nationalism, and identitarianism, where people identify themselves very deeply with their local customs and pride. But one thing is for sure. Democracy has yielded a far less unified world, far less unified communities, and to the degree that unity is necessary, not just to prevent strife and violence, war and bloodshed, but because it's a basic enrichment of the human condition, both at a resource level to pool resources, more importantly, an experiential level to live peacefully, respectfully, be enriched by the experiences of others. This, unfortunately, is eluding us. And it is particularly that type of unity which we daven for on Rosh Hashanah. We ask Baruch Hu to impose his fear, to remind modern man of fear. Baruch Hashem, we've stabilized and reinforced our world. Certain stages we forgot fright, we forgot vulnerability, we forgot fragility, we lost the ability to fear. Over the last 20 years, major events have restored fear into our lives. Certainly, terror, fundamentalist terror, September 11th, and all the secondary events, not that they're in any way secondary because they entail loss of life, but certainly not at the scale and magnitude of September 11th. And we hope that a Kurdish Baruch Hu will impose his presence and enable, enable the unity of man, the Yasukulam, the enfranchisement, the fusion, the solidarity, and just that achievement in human terms. We believe that religion can't just be gauged in human terms. It's transcendent in the very interaction and relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu is beneficial to man. But just tasting the unity that we strive so hard for, and to a degree, ironically, was in greater relief under tyrannical and abusive forms of government big government which didn't allow for self-expression didn't allow for creativity didn't allow for individualism and certainly we would select democracy and its freedoms any day of the week above the suppressive regimes of antiquity but we're not satisfied with partial success Kurdish Baruch Hu's unity, the unity that Kurdish Baruch Hu's presence enables is not just because of the fear and the fear which limits strife, 
As the enormity of a Kaddish Baruch who reminds us of the partial nature of our own views, exposure to the sweep and the infinity of a Kaddish Baruch Hu, contextualizes human opinion, reminds us that none of our positions are absolute, they're all relative to our own experience, relative to the to the absolutism of a Kaddish Baruch Hu's presence. One of the Pesukim more we cite in Malchus Vayhi Bishur Melech Bisasev Rashayam, where a Kaddish Baruch Hu resides with Yeshur, and Yeshur being a nickname for Am Yisrael, for Yisrael. Yachat Shifta Yisrael, even at a local level, Am Yisrael achieves the unity that is oftentimes so unreachable, so unattainable. And even within Am Yisrael, we feel, Baruch Hashem, I don't feel that. Sometimes I hear the people complaining about lack of achdus, strife, contention. Maybe I live in a different world, but when you compare the Jewish experience, the state of Israel in particular, to other states, to other communities, certainly our neighbors, the Shiites and the Sunnis, I don't feel that it ever disintegrates into that type of violence and hatred. People feel very passionate about their ideas. They're not always able to appreciate the complexity of the human condition, the alternate truth that others possess. They're not able to summon the type of respect and dignity. So they lose their cool and they say things or act in ways that are sectarian and imbalanced, but never disintegrates to the level of real strife and real, at least it shouldn't. But still, we yearn for a unity that we haven't experienced the irony of the 50th celebration of Yom Yushalayim hit me very hard at the Shofar at the Kotel it's such a unifying force Jews across the globe religious, non-religious just heard that Shofar and saw those pictures and imagined the paratroopers and unfortunately at this point the Kotel has become a factor of disunity and, and divisiveness and I certainly would be a proponent of finding some form of agreement some form of arrangement to create inclusiveness at the Kotel because that's the role of the Beis HaMikdash and that's the role of the Kotel. And to a degree, that's part of the flaw of Migdal Bavel. Migdal Bavel was an attempt to create a community and a government and a city and there were so many, so, there were so many ingredients of unity. They spoke one language and had common agendas, everything was aligned perfectly. It was the perfect storm for human solidarity and human fraternity. One thing was missing. Kish Baruch Chazal, of course, read more sinister intentions than to make the Migdal Babels if they wanted to rebel against the Kish Baruch But the literal reading doesn't imply rebellion, it just implies deletion. They were the first communists. And I don't mean they were communists financially or economically. But communism tried to build a community of solidarity and unity without the presence of a Kish Baruch And that will never will never sustain itself. Common purpose at a human level can wax and wane, can rise and fall, but the true unity, true solidarity emerges in the wake of the encounter with HaKadosh Baruch Hu and the recognition of partial truth at the human level. And the Shofar is meant to be that great unifier, Kal Yoshvei when the flagpole is raised, everyone, call Shofar, they'll hear the Shofar. So we dive into that unity and we realize that as hard as we try and we there is certainly room to improve and in Baruch Hashem in Eretz Yisrael where there is a unifying ethos and there are mechanisms to reinforce that unity serving in the army being one significant one obviously facing a range of enemies the Hasaris HaTabas of Haman Haman's ring is a great unifier but somehow this year and over the past couple of years we've witnessed more than just lack of unity and lack of identity We've witnessed extreme polarization. As I mentioned before, democracy is a very delicate balance between pitching differing views and assuming that those differences will emerge, those differences will be volatile, those differences will be quite quite loud in an election year, the decibel level of those differences will be amplified. But what the hope is that it enables compromise and enables a, a distillation of different views and common purpose somehow those differences have been harshened and sharpened and there's a lot of anger and dismissiveness almost instinctive, reflexive um, it's hard to know again most of my cultural reference points are beyond the state of Israel most of my cultural reference points are United States based but there's, there's great irony 
in um, many people feel the dwindling fortunes of the Republican Party aligning themselves with Donald Trump who at least the first couple months in office certainly haven't aided the fortunes of the Republican Party regardless of how you feel about Donald Trump's presidency but in some ways they're reaping the hatred they sow towards Democrats for so many years and it's almost as if the Republican representative doesn't have to stand for many of the Republican positions as long as he stands for the hatred of Democrats or anything Democratic to a degree we may be experiencing something similar in Israel where the Likud and Bibi Netanyahu again regardless of your appraisal of Bibi as a person or Bibi as the head of a political party but there's just such animosity and, and inability to see other views that expresses itself now as in many ways an all out desperate attempt to displace or unseat Bibi Netanyahu from his form of government and to me someone who doesn't care much about politics it's just it's more reflective of a cultural polarization and inability to appreciate the ulterior truths beyond your own. A lot has to do with the, the advent of social media. It empowers radical expressions under classic terms in which news outlets delivered news to broad spectrums of different groups. So there was an implied subtlety and implied variety within those news outlets. Obviously each news outlet, whether it's a television station or a newspaper tilted left or tilted right on any particular view but inasmuch as they were projecting and broadcasting through a broad mass they realized their presentation had to be balanced and had to be calibrated so that it would enable mass consumption and the entire methodology the delivery system of news of information of views has been radically altered and that's also even affected classic delivery mechanisms so that in response to social media, media outlets, even classic ones, newspapers and televisions have felt the need to become polarized. And that leads to very, very extreme, radicalized opinions which completely dismiss the possibility of truth or opportunity through compromise, through common purpose. Social media is also provided for individuals, not just the projectors and the broadcasters, but not just the ideas that are being broadcast, but the audience we find ourselves, as people call in an echo chamber, where we read the ideas that are common to us and common to our friends and common to our own small communities that seem large in the internet sphere, but are actually pretty small. And look at the types of friends that I have. I've got 2,500 Facebook friends. So that would seem to be a very large community, but ultimately it's a very homogeneous community. People are I naturally interact with, I meet them, friends, family members, I sufficiently exposed to people whose views are significantly different from mine and ability to account for truths that my own positions can't account for. So we're looking for not just unity, but for subtlety, for acceptance, for kindness. And those seem to me to be two of the handicaps democracy. Some of them have been felt over the course of the last century. Some of them have been accentuated over the last couple of years. We also live in a modern world, a world of postmodernism, subjectivism. Each person has their own vote, and surely each person has their own perspective and their own moral guide, which essentially eliminates any fixed, any North Star, any absolute moral position People have called this the age of moral subjectivism, the postmodern world in which there's no absolute truth. To a degree, this has invaded the political system. At the heart of government is the assumption that the leaders of government will not just serve to implement policy, to protect law, to advance the national agenda, but also as role models to distribute people, move people, and the values that people live in real time are so much more compelling than abstract concepts. And somehow in many democracies, that sense of a leader is a role model, as he wrote it. Regardless of whether you support Donald Trump or oppose Donald Trump, even his most ardent supporters have a very difficult time defending his character, 
his morality, his behavior, his comments. Even though us artist defenders, uh, artist, support, artist supporters would say, however, we're not interested in a president as a role model. We're interested as a president to advance important policies, agendas, decisions. And he would make the best decisions and advance the country. That attitude, not Donald Trump per se, but that attitude is flawed. We look to our leaders to set, perhaps not for Jews, because then Jews always have to operate within the political system and not become too entrenched mentally. Hashem, we have plenty of good role models, parents, teachers, rabbis, morally strong people, people that are living, people we read about. It's a little bit, um, in some ways, a little bit uncomfortable with some of the horror expressed by those who oppose Trump. And where will our children look for role models? And I understand that children may look more immediately to those who grab headlines. But for a mature adult to worry about the Trump presidency because of the values that he would pick up is to, is to be perhaps um, insensitive to the role or, dis- or imbalance in the role that politics should play in shaping our identities. We have to be involved completely and fully invested. It should shape the identity of a Jew, whether this person is the president or that person is the president. Whatever person can look to Bikivega and the Chassam Sofer, the Maharal and the Rambam in ways that render um, human occupants of a particular office or a particular building really less relevant to the shaping of identity. But in a larger sense, in a larger sense, um, humanity Communities at large take their cue from their leaders. The Rambam describes the Melech as the Leif Ha'uma, the heart of the people. Moshe Rabbeinu looks for Elohim, not just because they won't be susceptible to graft and to corruption, but because the, the role of, of, of a leader is to project values that, quite frankly, transcend the exigencies and the demands of the moment. This policy, that policy, morality, ethics, the search for truth, the search for HaKadosh Baruch Hu, for religious people, those are arcs and trajectories that are so much more important than this policy or that policy. And in a world of moral subjectivism, which I think is a byproduct of democracy, that world has shifted the public interests away from values in our leaders and towards policies. Because if no one value is the absolute value, then perhaps it's ridiculous to look for a role model because every value can be questioned and every position and every ethos and every ethic can be seen from a, or viewed from a different perspective. And the polarization of society has made us deeply, deeply passionate about our policies. Moral subjectivism has made us less concerned with moral values and that combination has in many, many ways created a democratic world in which whom we elect, again, people felt it very powerfully in Trump, but you could already see it on the margins. Entertainers entering politics with little credentials, not just little credentials, but limited credentials, but questionable moral experiences and moral personalities. Happened in Italy about 15, 20 years ago. A former uh, pornography star was voted as a, as a parliament member. Happened in America. A wrestler would, was elected. People who were entertainers. And to a degree, that's also part of our, the challenge for the encroachment of entertainment upon politics. This is the age of entertainment. Become addicted to entertainment. I chaff at the celebration or any mention of celebration of Steve Jobs as if he was a an American hero or capitalist hero. The man changed nothing in our world. He introduced nothing of value. He aggregated wealth. The only change he introduced into our world is he enabled entertainment more readily and more facilely. You can make a claim that the advent of the cell phone and, of course, his contribution to that development enabled many other areas of productivity, of exchange of information, of family unit, of course, but Essentially, these are small, small uh, peripheral elements. Most people employ their phones for entertainment, for games, for movies, for music, for pictures, for social media, in, in a way that's entertaining. And certainly, that's what, what fueled Apple, if you compare the, the Apple phone versus other operating environments or other types of phones. Clearly, that Apple tried to create a, an environment that a, it's not a, 
those people who want productivity out of their phone tend to choose other operating systems. Those who want the entertainment, the iTunes and, 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 and movies and movies with men, Apple, Apple Media. I believe that some of the tilt towards entertainment is because humanity still hasn't recovered the trauma of lost identity in the early part of the 20th century. At a certain point, it just becomes easier to ignore it and to escape into a fantasy land of movies and media, TV and music. It soothes the fever of the soul searching for the identity that was surrendered in those very tumultuous years of the 200 years of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century. But either way, Entertainment is encroached upon politics. How many people vote for candidates they're entertained by? Their entertainment value rather than dry candidates as morals or improbity or upright. It's really become a circus. And it's a sad legacy that we're facing. And we look for role models in our kings. And obviously in Rosh Hashanah, we hope that a Kaddish Baruch Hu will provide a similar Hashem, Kaddish Baruch Hu should return David HaMelech, the descendant of David HaMelech, but not just David HaMelech, Hashiva Shafteinu Kivori Shona HaMelech HaMishpat, people that the world look to as examples, moral examples. We fall into a culture of distrust. We don't celebrate legends. We don't put people on pedestals. To a degree, that's healthy, it's beneficial. We live in a more transparent world in which we don't assume that our leaders are squeaky clean. We don't assume they're beyond crime. And by doing that and by creating that transparency and by rejecting some of those assumptions, we spare ourselves tremendous, tremendous abuse, tremendous hardship that had gone unaccounted for and unpoliced in previous generations. On the other hand, we, we sell a culture of distrust Certainly from a religious standpoint, which has pivoted so deeply upon the institution of authority and the continuity and reliability of Masara. This is eating away. This is creating a tremendous crisis. Religion is pitched upon Masara. And the world in which our children are raised is not a world in which trust is built and authority is reinforced if anything is challenged. And this is really the first, the first regression and the first um, handicapping of Malchus Hashem in the modern world. And we daven passionately on Rosh Hashanah for the restoration of Hakadosh Baruch Hu's presence. V'yedal kol parok yatapiyato v'yasekul maguda achas lasos v'sancha b'leiv avshalim. Pray for the unity that has provided so elusive in some ways the disunity that democracy has bred. We pray for the softening of polarization. Pray for a world in which moderation and passion cohere and coexist. A world in which morality reestablishes absolute values rather than subjective swirl. And we pray for a world in which the role models and the figures who govern human experience, who defend human rights, also individuals and inspire trust and that challenge us to moral high ground. We also daven for the removal of Kisa Avir Memshalas Zadomin Arts Vachin Sadikim Yuvis Machovisham Yalazu Vachasin Briniagil Ovialasa Tikpatspia Vichalarisha Akula Kiasham Techle Kisa Avir Memshalas Zadomin Arts. Memshalas Zadon is an interesting phrase. It doesn't mean only a government of evil as we oftentimes easily associate it, also means the rule of evil. A government that's evil would be written as Memshala Zdona or Memshala Shal Rishayim. Memshala Zadon means the rule of evil. And in many cases, it's immediately easier for us to associate that with evil regimes. But unfortunately, we live in a world in which evil reigns over man in ways which are non-governmental, have little to do with governments. Certainly the most obvious is the advent of terror and terror without an agenda. Terror's first evolution, first incarnation, was terror as a tool to accomplish a political goal as vicious and indefensible as that is. At least there's some higher arching purpose. In some cases the purpose can be seen. Not that the ends can ever, ever justify the means, but at least 
some theoretical level, at least for the adherence of the believers, to serve some larger goal of freedom, of liberty, of, of, of ending and, and, and terminating unfair rule. But certainly the 21st century has introduced us to terror, just to kill, just to maim, just to sow fear, just to sow aggression. The ultimate of Mshel Zadon, to maim and, and, and also to theatrically present gory and grotesque abuses of human liberty and human life just to inspire fear, not even to kill, but just to inspire fear and terror. And to a degree beyond just thinking of what happened over the last two, three years with ISIS, in general, the advent of organized crime, people that organize their resources solely for the purpose of performing crime, and of course, much of that crime is death and destruction. It's a relative, relatively modern convention. Obviously, there are precedents to it in the past, but the image of a, of, of a highwayman or a band of highwaymen or a band of criminals or just, just individuals grouping together to steal with greater efficiency, to protect their own interests, but cartels and, and organizations that persistently advance theft and death Certainly, it's easy for us to recognize how much Memshelas Zadon has begun to permeate our world. Certainly, as of the Hashem, we're saddened by this unholy alliance between religion and death, which we still can't escape. People who kill and maim indiscriminately in the name of God, in the name of religion, in a way that doesn't just, doesn't just provide a failed cover for their acts of murder and their criminal acts, but also defaces the presence of Akadosh Baruch in our world. This is the great battle we're fighting to present the world with the true face of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the face of Rachamim, the face of Chesed, not this hijacked, vandalized face of bloodlust and ire and anger. So painful every year on Rosh Hashanah. As we dive in and we understand HaKadosh Baruch Hu is Kelmelech Yoshev HaKisei Rachamim and we recite the 13 Nidos and how few people in our world are able to associate that face with the face of the Bani Shalom. And in many ways, in many ways because of radical terror fundamentalist terror. Memshel Zadon is not just death, crime, but it's also the violence in our world. Verbal violence, the lack of kindness. There's a simmering anger beneath the surface of humanity. It erupts in certain ways in road rage. It erupts in lack of respect. It erupts in scapegoating minorities conspiracy theories looking there's a lot of disenfranchisement for some people it yields apathy to the world around them for others it yields real anger looking for the real culprits of a of a disaligned world again capitalism has offered so many promises to humanity promises it can't make good on it can't fulfill it's created financial incentives and and, and appetites the consumer appetite and the premise of a consumer economy and at some point the appetites that capitalism um, stimulates just can't be fulfilled and when those appetites aren't fulfilled there's a lot of anger disappointment expectations were raised even a very very angry world a lot of a lot of fury I personally wonder to myself whether that's part of the reason that the divorce rates are rising and the inability to handle anger and the ability to exhibit patience and forbearance and kindness and selflessness. Obviously, the great enemy of marriage is the absolute and complete, complete um, ubiquity of pornography, which is literally toxic to a marriage. It creates expectations simply unrealistic and irrelevant. It creates certain thresholds of pleasure that keep rising as they're served and, and filled and creates levels of expectation that is simply um, unimaginable and they're not even true and they're just completely staged. Part of it is just we've created an angry world and anger management and dealing with disappointment and dealing with it's natural to any relationship. The relationship, the deeper the relationship, the greater the disappointment when, when the expectations aren't met and and the deep world hurt because there's an emotional availability and the violence in our world, the anger in our world has created very, very angry marriages and angry 
communities and angry and the kindness has been replaced by that verbal violence and even the attitudinal violence. So when I say, my first thoughts are to the Nasrallahs. My first thoughts are to the ISIS. My first thoughts are to the North Koreas of the world, the terror organizations, the mafia, the cartels. But also think about just the evil that's overtaking us. In some ways, you're not even acknowledging, you're not even fully cognizant of. So obviously, these are partial thoughts, the thoughts that are ongoing, as we see human history evolving. But I think in a global sense, in a broader sense, this is a day in which we feel Hashem's Malchus. This is a day in which we're glad that His Malchus is by and large advancing, certainly the state of Israel, the renewal of the Jewish people, the spread of democracy over the broader scale, the spread of morality in the broader sense, monotheism in the broader sense. But if we care about Hashem's Malchus, then we're pained by some of the regressions, some of the failures. And we gauge Hashem's Malchus not only by the volume of Gemara pages that have been studied, the amount of shuls that have been opened, and the expansion of the Orthodox community, or the success of the Jewish community, or the dramatic success of the State of Israel. But we worry about whether V'yeda kol pol piyata Hayom Rasalam, Hayom Yaviba Mishpat kol Yitzri Olamim, and they're not aware of it. And we have to daven for them. We have to take them into our tefillos. We have to be shluchet tzibur. If we're true shluchet tzibur, we have to identify with our constituents, with our dispatchers, the people we represent. And we have to think about how close or far are they from Malchus Hashem? How is the modern world, which deceives us into absolute, absolute Endorsement. We endorse so much of our modern world, but sometimes we're less capable of identifying the flaws and deficiencies which are latent within some of the provisions of modernity, in particular the provisions of democracy. Everyone should have a to us, to Israel, and to humanity at large.